This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 1 The Pinkertons, Part 1 of 3. We Never Sleep. The decades between the end of the American Civil War and the turn of the 20th century have been termed the Gilded Age. The name comes from an 1873 novel by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner that depicted the period's social ills and wealth inequality, despite its massive economic expansion, a body of rot covered in a thin veneer of gold. The post-war boom saw greater industrialization, the growth of the railroad industry, finance, factories and mining, agriculture and cattle ranching. While wages went up, many still lived in abject poverty. Meanwhile, wealth was increasingly concentrated in the hands of a few, the so-called robber barons, titans of industry like the Carnegies, Vanderbilts, and Rockefellers. When you hear someone say we're entering a new gilded age, that extreme wealth inequality is what they're referring to. Political corruption was rampant, and as urban populations exploded, so did the rise of the political machine, in which a small handful of powerful elites swayed elections and got government favors for their efforts. Westward expansion created the wild frontier, with all its lawlessness and romance. Labor unions made effective use of the strike to demand better wages, shorter workdays, and safer conditions. European immigrants swelled the ranks of American workers, leading to ethnic tensions and nativist backlash. All the while, state and federal governments struggled to keep up with a rapidly changing nation. It's in this context that a new kind of animal emerged, the private detective who could hunt down criminals, root out corruption, and provide armed force where the state could not, or would not. One of the earliest, and by far most notorious of these entities, was the Pinkerton Agency. Established in 1850, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency was designed to fill a niche that, at the time, wasn't occupied by state-sponsored law enforcement. With the rise of major industrialists and financiers, the capitalist class found a need for investigators, spies, and armed guards to maintain order among the workforce, root out thievery and embezzlement, and protect property. By the end of the revolutionary period of the 18th century, the old institutions that had enforced order, the aristocracy and the church, had much less influence. Early police forces in the United States were generally concerned with keeping the public peace, enforcing punishments for the violation of laws, and catching escaped slaves. They were of less use to private business, and the rapidly growing railway industry in particular needed a hired hand to keep things in order. At the same time, the explosion of urban centers and the opening of the western frontier meant that federal, state, and municipal governments also needed a helping hand in enforcing the law. They contracted with Pinkertons, as well as other private detective agencies, to fill various roles such as police detective, sheriff's deputy, and federal agent. For decades, the Pinkertons played this dual role, defenders of capital and agents of the state. But there was kind of a crisis of legitimacy created by this mess of affiliations and official appointments. Whose interests did the Pinkertons really serve? What was their proper role in society? Alan Pinkerton was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1819. 
Before his immigration to the United States in 1842, he was active in the Scottish Chartist movement. At the time in Scotland, only propertied men had the right to vote, and Chartism sought suffrage for working-class men who didn't own property. After moving to the States, Pinkerton settled in Illinois and became active in the abolitionist movement, even turning his cabin into a stop on the Underground Railroad and attending secret meetings with abolitionists John Brown and Frederick Douglass. His first foray into detective work was totally happenstance. While wandering through the woods near his home, he came upon a group of counterfeiters. He followed them for a bit before alerting the local sheriff to their activities. The band was arrested, and shortly thereafter, Pinkerton was made the first police detective in Chicago in 1849. A year later, he established the Northwestern Police Agency, which later expanded into the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Their insignia was a creepy, wide-open eye with the words, We Never Sleep. Throughout the 1850s, the Pinkerton Agency mostly investigated currency counterfeiting and train robberies, both of which were rampant during the free banking era of the time, when almost any entity could issue paper money, and the expansion of the rail system into the West. We all have that image of tramps running across the tops of train cars, cartoonish bags of money in their hands, agile men in suits and hats running them down. It was probably only slightly less dramatic than that. This work brought Alan Pinkerton into contact with the attorney for the Illinois Central Railroad Company, a guy you might have heard of named Abraham Lincoln. This connection served Pinkerton well, and once the Civil War kicked off, he became the head of the Union Intelligence Service, an early precursor to the U.S. Secret Service. Today, we think of the Secret Service as those guys in black suits talking into the hems of their sleeves, but they were originally founded to combat currency counterfeiting, which they still do today. Tracking down counterfeiters was also most of what Pinkerton did prior to the Civil War, and in fact, a lot of the contract work Pinkertons did throughout history formed the basis for various modern government agencies. During the Civil War, Alan Pinkerton's work for the Union included figuring enemy troop numbers, infiltrating Confederate units to gather intelligence, and guarding President Lincoln himself. While all of Pinkerton's work in the Civil War helped boost his profile and the reputation of the agency, one incident in particular really helped build the mythology of the Pinkertons for years to come. On the way to his inaugural address in Washington, D.C., Lincoln's whistle-stop tour had a scheduled appearance in Baltimore, where he would greet the public. Maryland was a slave state with strong Confederate sympathies, and Alan Pinkerton supposedly uncovered a plot to assassinate the new president-elect. He convinced Lincoln to take a special train from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to Baltimore that would stop in the dead of night, so Lincoln could make his train transfer in safety, without the knowledge of any would-be assassins. The crowd was extremely disappointed when Lincoln's train arrived at the station, sans president. The event became a black mark on Lincoln's presidency, and his critics called him a coward for hiding from the public. Historians have since debated whether there was really a threat to Lincoln's life in the so-called Baltimore plot. Alan Pinkerton was often overly cautious in his evaluations of the Confederacy, overestimating troop counts and giving the Union a lot of bad counsel that ultimately hurt their efforts. Some have suggested that Pinkerton either exaggerated or invented whole cloth the plot against Lincoln, 
an accusation that seems even more probable given what we'll learn later on about Pinkerton tactics. Nonetheless, Pinkerton used the story of the attempted assassination and his success in thwarting it as a PR tool, earning him a reputation as a keen detective and true patriot to the country. After the war, the Pinkerton Agency expanded its Chicago offices into New York City and Philadelphia. It focused most of its energy in four different fields, hunting down Western outlaws, and particularly train robbers, transporting expensive hauls of cash or merchandise between cities and towns, government contract work with the newly formed Department of Justice, and suppressing the popular labor movements that broke out in the last decades of the 19th century. While much of the Pinkertons' work involved strike-breaking and protecting the interests of capital, it was the romance of tracking down bandits and uncovering criminal conspiracies that captured the imagination of the public and dominated the mythology that the Pinkertons cultivated for themselves. It's not hard to imagine why. Pinkertons' agents and spies went after the biggest names in frontier criminality. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the Reno Gang, and the biggest fish of all. Jesse James. Alan Pinkerton felt a special enmity for the James brothers, pursuing them on his own dime long after the railroad stopped paying him. He even had his detectives attack the James family farm with an explosive device, killing a younger brother and maiming a woman inside. But Jesse himself either wasn't home or escaped. Though Alan Pinkerton claimed that the plan for the raid never included arson, A letter discovered in the Library of Congress shows Pinkerton explicitly stating his intention to, quote, burn the house down. The incident was an embarrassment to the agency, and Pinkerton finally gave up the chase. By 1876, a year after the attack on the James farm, the Pinkerton agency was in dire financial straits. Around this time, the priorities of the agency shifted from tracking down criminals as an extension of the state to a more lucrative and steady-paying gig, a private army for rich industrialists. The last three decades of the century saw bloody conflicts between capital and labor, and mining and railroad corporations often hired the Pinkertons to squash labor unions. This must have been a difficult development for Alan Pinkerton, who was active in working-class politics in his home country of Scotland. Part of the explanation may lie in Pinkerton's disdain for Irish immigrant workers, who made up a large percentage of the workforce and whom he associated with criminality. He also explained the agency's anti-labor actions in terms of free labor ideology. He argued that radical anarchist labor activities, read unionizing, undermined the autonomy of honest working men. According to Pinkerton, his work for the industrialists wasn't about squashing labor progress, but about liberating and protecting free labor. As control of the agency shifted toward his sons William and Robert in the 1880s, the conflicts between labor and capital grew increasingly dramatic. The Pinkertons' justifications for strike-breaking were harder and harder for the agency to maintain, especially as public sentiment shifted on the eve of the 20th century progressive era. One of the ways Alan Pinkerton built and maintained the reputation of the agency was through his popular detective books. In the pages of dime novels, Pinkerton portrayed his detectives as brave and cunning. The plot lines were romantic and sensationalist, and the public ate up stories of frontier bandits and secret societies. 
It's generally believed that Pinkerton hired a ghostwriter, but they were stamped with his name on the front of every cover, always alongside the all-seeing eye of the Pinkerton badge and their words, like a mantra, We never sleep. The descriptions of events were rich and fantastical, recounting things Pinkerton certainly could not have witnessed nor remembered in such great detail, but he's not the first author to never let the truth get in the way of a good story. From his first book, The Expressman and the Detective, in 1874, Allen published one or two books a year, every year, until the end of his life in 1884. He also had several writings published posthumously. In his stories, Pinkerton played with Victorian notions of masculinity and justice. The Pinkerton agent could be a proper gentleman with all the courtesies of middle-class ideals or a rough-and-tumble vigilante, dusty boots dug into a stallion flying through the Wild West. In his book, The Spy of the Rebellion, he was able to depict the captivating character Kate Warren, a woman Allen recruited as an agent at a time when women working in any such field was unheard of. She went undercover as a rich Southern belle during the Civil War and discovered the plot to assassinate Lincoln in Baltimore. Having a woman in the employ of the Pinkertons was useful for infiltrating social circles where a man might be more suspicious, and Kate, with all her intelligence and grace, made for not only a valuable asset, but an enchanting protagonist. But Pinkerton was selling more than just the merits of his detective agency. He was selling notions of the lawless frontier, whether that be in the newly settled western territories or the booming mining towns dotting the east and midwest. If the world was full of bad guys, chaos, injustice, and an ill-equipped law enforcement system, well, there was only one entity that could restore order. He was creating the supply as well as the demand. Yes, criminality was a real threat to society, but never fear, dear reader. The Pinkerton detectives are on the case. The brand Alan Pinkerton built for the agency existed somewhere between fact and fiction. The bones of his novelized exploits were broadly true, but it was in the details that he proved himself an unreliable narrator. And what he omitted played as much a role in developing the Pinkerton mythology as what he included. His novels focused much more on the exciting adventures of bank robbers and scoundrels than on the more tedious and problematic jobs that were the agency's bread and butter, working on behalf of industrialists to quell labor movements. The earliest show of force by armed Pinkerton agents on behalf of capital wasn't directly tied to labor, but to the protection of private property more generally. After the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, Alan Pinkerton placed guards on the streets and posted broadsides declaring that any person stealing or seeking to steal any of the property in my charge or attempt to break open the safes, as the men cannot make arrests at the present time, they shall kill the persons by my orders. No mercy shall be shown to them, but death shall be their fate. By demonstrating that the Pinkertons were willing to use extreme force to protect their clients' interests, Allen endeared himself to industrialists who were looking to hire armed protection, thus expanding the agency's scope of work. 
It's also kind of remarkable that a private agency was able to just advertise extrajudicial killings and really goes to show how ambiguous the Pinkertons' relationship with the law was. The first high-profile labor conflict the Pinkertons investigated was that of the Molly Maguires, a secret society of Irish workmen in the coal mines of Pennsylvania. The Mollies originated as an agrarian uprising in Ireland, where they used tactics of property destruction, intimidation, and violence to fight back against what they believed were unfair land-use practices. The Mollies tore down fences, killed or drove off livestock, and under cover of night plowed land that had been converted into pasture. As Irish immigrants arrived in the United States and moved westward to find work, they brought Molly Maguireism with them. The mining industry, like so many other industries, was fraught with ethnic and religious divisions, and English and Welsh workers enjoyed higher status, privileges, and pay than their Irish counterparts. The Mollies were accused of a litany of crimes, including murder, kidnapping, and arson. They had close ties to labor unions in the area, and some historians have argued that the allegations against the Mollies were exaggerated or completely invented as a means to break unionism in Pennsylvania's coal mining industry. The Molly Maguire investigation was wrapped up in a larger cultural context of fear regarding secret societies. These fraternities relied on their secrecy to protect members via anonymity and gave them a mode of organization for mutual aid, community solidarity, and building strong ties among ethnic minorities. Secret societies were, of course, nothing new, but the idea that immigrants were forming fraternities roused public suspicion. They were perceived as a threat not only to industry, but to society itself. These organizations needed to be infiltrated and exposed, the thinking went, and the Pinkertons were the only ones capable of getting the job done. In the aftermath of the Panic of 1873, one of the worst and longest depressions in U.S. history, high unemployment and widespread wage cuts had led to massive labor unrest in both the railroad and mining industries. By 1877, about one-fifth of all working men were unemployed, and the majority of the rest were underemployed. Conditions in the mining industry were atrocious. Wages were low, a speed-up system exhausted workers and gave them no time to rest or eat, and grievous injuries, even deaths, happened in the thousands every year. The Working Men's Benevolent Association, a powerful coal miners' union, fought hard to improve wages and working conditions, striking in 1868, 69, 71, and its final so-called long strike in 1875. The long strike was an abject failure. Strikebreakers were brought in, and the men were eventually forced back to work, accepting a 20% wage decrease. Strong affiliation between the WBA and the Molly Maguires was suspected, but never definitively proven. That supposed association would be used against the WBA to crush it. In 1873, the president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, Franklin Benjamin Gowan, contracted with the Pinkerton Agency to infiltrate the Molly Maguires. It's worth noting that Reading Railroad was not even legally allowed to own or operate coal mines according to their charter, but in his attempt to control both the production and distribution of coal throughout Pennsylvania, Gowan opened a series of mines anyway. And the only obstacle standing in Gowan's way was the Working Men's Benevolent Association. 
The Pinkertons were already active in the coalfields of Pennsylvania, supervising the Coal and Iron Police, a private police force whose main purpose was to provide companies with strikebreakers. Pinkerton spy James McParland was tasked with infiltrating the Molly Maguires, and he was particularly suited to the job thanks to his Irish background. The Mollies only accepted Irishmen. Despite Alan Pinkerton's distaste for the Irish, he determined McParland to be, as he put it, a fine specimen of the better class of immigrants to this country. Under the identity James McKenna, McParland spent three years infiltrating the Mollies, claiming to have attended a number of secret meetings where the men planned various acts of intimidation and violence. Infiltration was a different sort of detective work than what the Pinkertons had generally specialized in after the Civil War. Rather than building dossiers on embezzlers and outlaws, tracking them down in the frontier or on the railways, McParlin had to form connections with members of a secretive and close-knit community. Eventually, according to McParlin, he became a secretary for a local Molly's group, and he wrote reports for his Pinkerton manager that would later be used to prosecute the miners. But the Pinkertons did more than simply generate reports. They worked closely with the coal and iron police to break up meetings and intimidate miners. The captain of the police, Robert Linden, was also a Pinkerton agent. On top of that, various vigilante groups grew up out of the coal and iron police and the Pinkertons. In a letter to one of his agents, Alan Pinkerton approved of these extra-legal measures, encouraged them even. If Linden can get up vigilance committee that can be relied upon, do so. When MMs meet, then surround and deal summarily with them. Get off quickly. All should be securely masked. In 1875, two years into McParlin's espionage gig, 30 masked men attacked the home of Mrs. O'Donnell, the mother of some suspected Mollies. They pistol-whipped Mrs. O'Donnell and shot and killed her daughter, Ellen McAllister. The men then dragged Charles and James O'Donnell as well as Charles McAllister's brother James into the street. James McAllister and James O'Donnell escaped, but the vigilantes shot Charles O'Donnell 15 times, leaving him in the street to die. His brother, James O'Donnell, was later executed in the Molly's trials. McParlin was furious that it seemed his reports to his supervisor had been leaked to vigilantes, who then retaliated against the Molly's. He attempted to resign, writing to his manager, Now I wake up this morning to find that I am the murderer of Mrs. McAllister. What had a woman to do with the case? Did the Molly Maguires in their worst time shoot down women? If I was not here, the vigilante committee would not know who was guilty. And when I find them shooting women in their thirst for blood, I hereby tender my resignation to take effect as soon as this message is received. It is not cowardice that makes me resign, but just let them have it now. I will no longer interfere as I see that one is the same as the other, and I am not going to be an accessory to the murder of women and children. I am sure the Molly Maguires will not spare the women so long as the vigilante has shown an example. But McParland was convinced not to resign, and his testimony was key in the prosecution and execution of 20 men. Whether the Pinkertons merely uncovered evidence or actually served as agents provocateur is still an open question. Labor historians have suggested that the Mollies may have been largely an invention of the mining companies in an attempt to suppress unionism. Critics at the time noted that most of the violence in the coal mines came after the arrival of the Pinkertons, 
and that the evidence against the miners was often contradictory. The only people to corroborate McParland's testimony at trial were men who were granted immunity in exchange for their accounts. During the trials, Gowan himself argued against the Mollies, telling a jury, It is simply a question between the Molly Maguires on the one side and Pinkerton's detective agency on the other, and I know too well that Pinkerton's detective agency will win. There is not a place on the habitable globe where these men can find refuge and in which they will not be tracked down. He made it clear that no Molly was safe from prosecution, saying, The cat that holds the mouse in her grasp sometimes lets it go for a little while to play, but she knows well that at her will she will again have it secure within her claws, and Pinkerton's agency may sometimes permit a man to believe that he is free, who does not know that he may be traveling five thousand miles in the company of those whose vigilance never slumbers and whose eyes are never closed in sleep. This reference to the creepy open eye of the Pinkerton emblem would not have been lost on the public. But at the time, in the 1870s, there was widespread criticism of the events. As one judge who observed the case noted, the Molly Maguire trials were a surrender of state sovereignty. A private corporation initiated the investigation through a private detective agency. A private police force arrested the alleged defenders, and private attorneys for the coal companies prosecuted them. The state provided only the courtroom and the gallows. Years later, in 1879, the governor of Pennsylvania, Milton Schapp, granted a posthumous pardon to one of the men executed as a Molly Maguire. The governor praised the Maguires as heroes of the labor movement, vilifying Reading Railroad President Gowan as a greedy industrialist who sought only to break the back of unionism rather than root out violent elements among his employees. We'll never know for certain whether the men sentenced to death for their role in the killings were guilty, or if they were merely victims of the greed of Franklin Gowan and the ambition of the Pinkertons. Gowan's hatred of so-called communists, which appeared to mean anyone agitating for better wages and working conditions, was not something he hid. Anti-Irish sentiment certainly didn't help the cases of the accused. The Pinkertons generally, and McParlin in particular, stood a lot to gain from the successful prosecution of the Mollies. The incident catapulted McParland to national fame and laid a new foundation for Pinkerton work, infiltrating labor organizations and gathering evidence against workers. The events even inspired two of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, the novel The Valley of Fear and the short story The Adventure of the Red Circle in which Detective Sherlock Holmes teams up with a character based on James McParlin to investigate a secret society. Alan Pinkerton also wrote a dime novel about the events, The Molly Maguires and the Detectives. And if you'd like to hear excerpts from it, I've narrated a few chapters and posted them on Patreon. As we'll see later, there's good reason to suspect that McParlin in particular was not above provoking violent acts or exaggerating reports just as Alan Pinkerton himself had done during the Civil War. The Molly Maguires were just the beginning. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. 
If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.